I'm John Mooney and welcome to The Dark State. This podcast is brought to you through the generous financial support of our subscribers on Patreon and Apple Podcasts. If you wish to contribute and gain access to more exclusive episodes, please do subscribe. And now, on with the show. The Oma bombing of August 1998 was the largest single loss of life in the Troubles. 29 people and unborn twin girls lost their lives when a real IRA car bomb exploded. Among those who perished were young children, their parents and grandparents. Today we ask if the atrocity altered the course of violent dissident republicanism and heralded the end of car bomb attacks. I'm John Mooney. Welcome to The Dark State. I am joined on the line by Dr. John Morrison, who is a senior lecturer in criminology at Royal Holloway in London and has written extensively about violent dissident republicanism. I am also joined by Tony Harty, a retired member of Garda Special Branch, who spent many years dealing with the real IRA. Gentlemen, welcome to The Dark State. Dr. John Morrison, can I go to you first? What was the impact of the OMA bombing on Irish dissident republicanism? Well, that's, first of all, thanks for inviting me onto the podcast. It's a, it's a, it's an honor to be asked. And, um, a lot, I'd like to, to start my, my answers today by saying that a lot of my understanding of this, alongside my own research, has been influenced by your own work, John. Um, so it's, uh, a lot will be reflected in, in the books and the articles that you've written. But when you ask the question, what the impact, uh, of the OMA bombing was, uh, we can, obviously we're going to be talking a lot internally. Um, within Irish republicanism, um, but the greatest impact of the Oma bombing was the tragedy of the the, the deaths and injuries that were caused. Um, but, and this is for the years that that have passed since then. That is still the the most significant impact on the victims and the families themselves. But when we look internally within uh, Irish republicanism, we can see that it it's it led to uh, internal discussions within what is now called dissident republicanism uh, as to number one, is this legitimate? Uh, and uh, not just as an attack, as a tactic, but the overall strategic uh, utilization of armed republicanism. Um, and number two, then, okay, where do we move forward from here? So in the immediate aftermath, you can see the group going into, the real IRA going into ceasefire, but we do also see individual members who had only we have, we need to remember this was still a very new group mm. uh, individual members who had just newly joined up just newly left provisional IRA leaving the group behind so there was a weakening uh, of the of the movement of the of the organization itself um, but we do also and we're going to see this in the discussion I believe uh, today we do also see um, a change in the type of tactics uh, that were being adopted, and not just the tactics themselves, but who and where the targets were as well. So we do see that. And what we see with the OMA bombing and in the aftermath of it is we see a change in course in um, dissident republicanism in relation to the violent activity um, and the, the, the membership as a whole and the structure of the organization, which can lead on to uh, internal uh, feuds, ultimately split as well 
uh, as well as um, as seeing the reactions externally within the broader Republican uh, movement as well. Both mainstream Republicanism, represented by Sinn Féin uh, in this period, and within dissident Republicanism as well. Tony, what are your views? Hi, John. Thank you for having me on this. And delighted to uh, meet you also, uh, John. My views on it. Well, first of all, I think that the Oma bomb, as and when it happened, was a tragedy waiting to happen. From recollection, uh, the real IRA, as they, came, as they came to be known, they started off a bombing campaign earlier that year. And their first large bomb was in the centre of Banbridge in January. And that did considerable damage. They then carried out another bombing attack. And around the 1st of August, two weeks before the Oma bomb, they put another bomb again in uh, Banbridge. And that exploded before the area was fully cleared. Now, nobody was killed, thankfully. But there was a growing recklessness uh, and a growing desperation among the real IRA to make an impact as quickly as they could. And I recall a, a radio interview, I'm not sure if it was this first or second evening after the bomb, where one of the leaders of the group was asked for their comments in relation to what happened. And there was an outright and utter refusal to condemn it in any shape or form. I think the individual kept referring to the fact that nobody realized or wanted to see what caused something like that to happen in the first place that nobody was looking behind the causes of militant republicanism and why they could justify it. And that gathered momentum, especially in that border town of Dundalk. And it had, it had consequences for the public perception of a lot of the people involved. And that with media and international pressure, it, it, it was a, a real turning point in the whole process. Uh, there's no bomb of that size has been used since and that, with the with all the pressure that was on it, it it really knocked that whole idea of uh, massive car bombs, which would involve an inevitably civilian uh, casualties if something went wrong. It more or less terminated it. Tony, you were involved in dealing with many of the people who were involved in this particular yes. organisation, the Real IRA. Do you felt that many of them were startled by the public reaction to it or did they anticipate that this would uh, effectively become a death knell in some ways to their organisation? Or, you know, I know it trundled on for a number of years, but the wind that it had in its sails, certainly uh, it just passed at that stage. It didn't have that kind of support that it, it once had. Well, one of the things I saw happening, and it happened, very quickly, while the leaders were of the the new group, the the real IRA, they still had those same fundamentalist beliefs, but a lot of their newer adherents began to doubt themselves very seriously, and uh, they questioned the morality of what had happened. And the fruit of that was, and it was very notable, that um, they became um, riddled with informants. That that was very notable. It hadn't happened. In the same scale, on the same scale with the provisional IRA, but the, the real IRA was literally riddled with informants that were cooperating very easily. And also, uh, the amount of admissions made uh, of direct involvement during um, um, while in custody 
by especially some of the newer groups and some of the younger members. I never saw it happening with the revision in IRA, but it was remarkable how ha- how remarkable how often it happened uh, with that concentrated effort that started uh, post the Oma bombing. I think it started in the October where we would have uh, begun to get momentum, uh, plan operations and make arrests. And that started to happen very quickly. And that was another reason, I believe, from that time that caused, the, you know, it, it took away all their power and the demise started then of the um, the real IRA themselves. John Morrison, if I could ask you the following, the OMA bombing forced the real IRA to announce a ceasefire. Now, that was probably for strategic reasons at the time, but it did eventually resume its terrorist campaign, and you've done an awful lot of work on this. But it, on in terms of its new terrorist campaign, it never really did return to using car bombs. Instead, it, it engaged in other type of activity. Can you explain what happened there and why you believe the organization uh, switched tactics, for want of a better word? Well, I would often look at this um, and see, well, what's the immediate uh, goal of a group? What are they trying to, not what are they trying to achieve, i.e. a united Ireland, a 32 county united socialist Ireland. What do they have to achieve, first of all, before they can even think about uh, getting close to achieving that? What they, all groups have to achieve is organizational survival. They have to be able to survive as a group and a movement in order to even start considering uh, achieving those end goals. And with the backlash in the aftermath of the OMA bombing, uh, there is a recognition within the, within the real IRA that another OMA um, could lead to the end of the group. So while it might while it, it might be able to be painted as, oh, there's a focus on uh, the visible enemy, focus on uh, the prison officers, police service, focus on bombings within England. A lot of these decisions were made, in my view, because the group needed to be able to guarantee their own survival. That if they had another back, another OMA, they would get that backlash. And the back, this isn't when we're talking about the backlash. This isn't just public backlash. What is very important to a group like the Real IRA and the Provisional IRA before them is the support levels within the Irish Republican community. If we look in the immediate aftermath of the OMA bombing, you see a lot of pressure coming on the Real IRA. Uh, from their former comrades within the Provisional IRA and Sinn Féin. So there was an interview in a public um, with, uh, with the members of the, a member of the Provisional IRA in the direct aftermath of OMA. And they said, and I'm quoting here, said, many Republicans feel aggrieved that they have tarnished the name of Oakley and Heron, and many are justifiably angry at their use of the term real IRA. The grouping have done only disservice to the Republican cause. They have no coherent political strategy. They are not a credible alternative to the Irish Republican Army. In the immediate aftermath of the OMA bomb, they announced a temporary halt of their actions. This is insufficient. They should disband, and they should do do so sooner rather than later. If they continued with uh, car bombings within Northern Ireland, that pressure would have grown and grown and grown, and they would not have been able to sustain this. They would not have been able to survive. However, as they did, uh, go and concentrate within England, whether it's attacking um, places like uh, Hammersmith Bridge, Ealing Broadway Station, BBC Television Centre, MI6 headquarters. 
that isn't going to get the same backlash. That's not going to get the same backlash within the Irish Republican uh, community. And some of them, some of the, the time, some of those will uh, gain a bit more support as well. And it's in getting that, maintaining their existing support and membership, that's how they uh, seek to, uh, how they can go about maintaining any possibility of organisational survival. Um, so that, I believe, is one of the core reasons why we, we've seen, we saw that change. Tony, what's your thoughts on this? I, I basically agree with everything uh, our, spe- our previous uh, speaker has said there, but I also noted that in my direct dealings with some of the individuals, that uh, part of the bombing campaign and the, the, their, their targets that they chose was as much as to do with their political agenda and their future dreams, there was also a sense of among some of settling old scores um, and also of a degree of vengeance for what had happened. And then that combined with some of those elements being, t- being tied to uh, illegal smuggling where they were profiting from it. So it suited some of them to remain as uh, perceived strongmen while they could, on the one hand, be a quasi-Republican they were also in a position to profit uh, to a great degree from fuel smuggling and whatever other types of smuggling would go on. So that, that I would, that's how I would see that. The Provisional IRA carried out similar attacks, but it continued undeterred despite the public reactions to this. I'm thinking about Bloody Friday. I'm thinking about the big Manchester bombings um, and other major incidents like that. John Morrison, can you p- provide your views on why you believe they may have acted differently to the dissidents insofar as that the, the provisional IRA never seemed to be you know, deterred whatsoever by public condemnations or anything like that? It, it, it could be argued that they were actually encouraged by them. What what was the difference? So I think the difference is the time. I think when we look at when the Oma bombing uh, took place in 1998 versus when the attacks that you're referring to took place. Uh, when the Oma bombing took place, the leadership of the provisional IRA in Sinn Féin had led the vast majority of the Republican movement and the report, Republican support base to accept and move away from from armed activity, from armed um, from from the armed conflict. Whereas during the attacks that you're uh, uh, referring to, this is at a time when a large uh, proportion of the Republican community believed that they were at war and were were utilising that narrative of being at war. You were at in, in Northern Ireland and in Ireland as a whole at the time of the Oma bombing. It was a time of of hope. Uh, a time of hope about the potential prospects of peace and a stabilised Northern Ireland. So you didn't have that that same degree of hope at those times, and you didn't have that same belief that it, within these the the most important communities to the groups, their their own internal community, you didn't have that that sense that um, that there were peaceful uh, potential solutions on the table. And we do have. Other ceasefires uh, during the during the seventies, in particular, but there wasn't really that same sense that this was the end game here. But at the time when the Oma bombing took place, you had the majority of the Republican movement who had come to an agreement that yes, this this 
political solution was the way forward. And so you, in the aftermath of it, the backlash wasn't just coming from the general public. The backlash was coming from the vast majority of republicanism as well. Um, and you also had, because of the signing of the Good Friday Agreement and because of the international support for it, you had the ability of the Irish uh, government and the, the British government being able to bring in much more hardline draconian legislation as well uh, in reaction to this. Um, so we do obviously have the draconian legislation that we saw during the Troubles, but we do also see this uh, coming into place alongside that pushback from the majority of republicanism um, in the aftermath of OMA. Tony, do you have any thoughts on this? Yes, I do. And again, I agree with John there. But another issue there, during that particular time, the issue of uh, decommissioning was on the table and there was a big push towards it. And one of the big fears among the leadership of the provisionals was the issue of defection, that they would lose some of their best people. And that would include, obviously, um, their technicians and the people who are well capable of doing this. And I believe, and I believe then, that this was a very significant thing in the the horror generated by the OMA bomb. Uh, It prevented uh, defections of any scale, and that was um, subsequently uh, proven because the quality of uh, individuals that they were relying on more and more was decreasing. So that would I would have seen that in in a perverse way of being a beneficial effect in that in that you didn't get the feared defection. I often think back on those days and the Republicans who, uh, I suppose, dissented from the mainstream organisation and engaged in uh, all of these type of attacks. There were kind of a very loose bunch of people with lots of different um, ideals and ideas. The one thing that always struck me about them was they, they weren't very politically motivated. They were more IRA people as opposed to Sinn Féin people. They were very much focused on the continuation of a of a military campaign, as they saw it, as opposed to a political campaign to achieve their aims. Like, Tony, you, you dealt with a lot of people that were involved in this at the time, and you arrested many of them and, and indeed convicted many of them. Do, do you agree with that sentiment? I do, yes. And also, a lot of the um, younger people that they recruited were sometimes misfits or people with a lot of, in, in some cases I saw directly, uh, young men with deep personal issues, you know, family dysfunction, uh, mental health issues, um, alcohol, drug abuse. Certainly when they started to descend into that, uh, you could see that they, they, they were an organization that were, uh, the, the real IRA were, were clutching at straws at, at that stage. But but they did sort of, I suppose, morph into this new organisation. Now, I, I know many of the people who run that organisation, they're, they're different characters, it's a different profile of people. Um, uh, but, but they did survive um, eventually, uh, despite everything and despite um, uh, the public odium that was heaped upon them. Oh, that's true. But you will always get a cadre of young men uh, that will, uh, you know, seek to uh, will seek out uh, an organization like the, the the IRA it gives them you know these may be uneducated young men or they may be young men that have come from a history of republicanism multi many generations of republicanism in their families and 
it it is it is something that that's there. It's there nearly genetically in them, and some of them will gravitate towards that as well. Uh, so, and a lot of those don't see very much. Be, uh, there's no political agenda there. This is this is like uh, wanting to a, a desire among, among young men of wanting to belong to something, and some of those young men in belonging to a group like that, it gives them like a, a power in their community or in their locality or among their peers. It's an unspoken type power, but I have found that to be a, a very real thing among them. John Morrison, if we can return to you for a moment. Dissident Republican groups now use much smaller devices to attack their victims. You've done an awful lot of research work on this. Are car bombs now a thing of the past? Or, or do you think that the, these groups will switch tactics or return to this particular modus operandi at some point in the future if it suits them? Well, I think before I fully deal with, with that answer, I want to, to link up with, um, with what Tony was saying just there. And I, I, I'm in agreement with, with what Tony was saying there as well. I think it's important to note that a lot of the time when we're looking at these groups, um, the dissident Republican groups, or if we were even looking at the provisional IRA uh, previously, um, that when we see people joining the groups, one of the things that we need to understand is that it's not always influenced by the national uh, aims of the groups. It's not always influenced by this aim for a united Ireland. There are people who join up these groups, oftentimes because of what's happening within their local area. And that local area can be defined by not just what part West Seaman from West Belfast or wherever. It can be defined by the housing estate that they're from or the apartment blocks that they live in or the small geographic area there and the influential individuals within that area as well. Um, but when we're looking at the tactics themselves and when we're looking, the, going back to the, the question that you were asking me about, are these, uh, are these car bombs a thing of the past? I think for the moment we're not really going to see um, we're not going to see the, them being utilised within Northern Ireland uh, in the immediate future. This is not to say that they'll never come back. And we have seen uh, some, some uh, attempts that didn't come off or were, weren't exactly at what we were seeing in Oma, Bambridge and elsewhere. Um, but what we see now is we see a lot more targeting of less about of the general public as we would have seen within Oma but more um, targeting of police officers, prison officers. We see the targeting uh, through postal bombs and army recruitment offices. We see it uh, in political figures at times, uh, senior police officers as well. But I think it's it's hugely important to note that when we're looking at contemporary paramilitary republicanism, the vast majority of the violent activity isn't this nationalized terrorist attacks as as we would uh, often refer to them. The majority of the violent activity comes within those local communities in which these people are, are based. It comes with the what used to be called the punishment attacks and now would be uh, more, more called paramilitary-style attacks. That's the most consistent form of violence that we see. And that so we can see within the writings of these groups, even when you go back to the Green Book, like you see this differentiation between the, the national struggle, uh, as, the, as the, they would put it, of uh, United Ireland, but also those localised aims of the group of 
targeting drug dealers, suspected drug dealers, those who are informers, those who um, who are joyriding or who are debt drivers, as the, the line, as as they'd be referred to within the community. So we need to to be realistic about where the violence is and what who the targets are. A lot of the targets are within their their own those uh, specific Republican communities. When we look at that that those more nationalised attacks, those attacks that are carried out in order to uh, try and bring attention to this aim for, um, in their words, getting the Brits out, um, we're less likely, I think, at the moment to see those uh, those indiscriminate car bomb attacks as we have seen before. Uh, and this is off the back, still to this day off the back of, of OMA, I, I, I think, but also because of the capabilities of the group. Not just capabilities in relation to the weapons and technological capabilities. It's going back to that point about organizational survival again. If we see the backlash against this group and if we see similar arrests um, uh, going, going on and similar implementation of legislation as we saw in the aftermath of OMA, would, that could lead to the end of the new IRA or any other group uh, that, that is existent at the moment. So it is because for these, not just because the moral logic that uh, that Tony was referring to earlier, and I do agree in relation to that point as well, but it's because of strategic and organizational logic as well. And what is it that is going to happen afterwards? What's the backlash going to be? And can they survive that? In that regard, John, do you believe that there, the, the new IRA there, and distant Republican ism itself has morphed into something else that maybe isn't fully understood yet or or is it simply that they've gone into organizational survival i don't think it's necessarily morphed into something else i think it's uh it's about the evolution in tactics we're actually seeing that when we see the the statements of the groups over the past few years and when we see the tactics that are utilized they're actually reaching into the past a lot uh, in relation to the attacks that they would utilize. So we see, for example, the postal bombs being used, and these were used in the past before by the provisional IRA. If we see even the selection of um, of, of targets, so you've got prison officers going back to Dave Black, Adrian Ismay, and others who are being targeted again. This is them doing something that, hadn't been done by the provisionals uh, for for a while before the end of the of the troubles, but it's it's something that they were reaching back to say, look, we are still uh, the legitimate heirs to uh, we're the ones going to carry on the armed struggle here and utilizing the tactics of the past. You also see within the prisons and the prison protests when you look at the non-violent activity uh, of these groups and their members as well. You see the their utilization of protests when you see the the language that's been used in the statements as well and how the prisoners are being uh, portrayed and the conditions in which they're being held under as well. You can see it it them harking back to the past as well. So while you might you might say they're morphed into something else, they're actually that something else is them trying to draw on on the past as well. So I would say like they're copying what was done by the provisionals to show that they're different to the modern modern day uh, mainstream republicanism, that they're different to Sinn Féin and the way that Sinn Féin have, have evolved. And you see in the statements that they put forward that actually the, the people, the, the group that they're most 
likely to condemn aren't the British establishment, not the British government. It's Sinn Féin. They talk about them having abandoned republicanism and having abandoned the Republican cause. So they're constantly comparing themselves uh, against mainstream republicanism. And um, and that's what we're seeing a lot of the time. And that's part of the uh, aspect of survival is that they're trying to draw the membership and support away from from Sinn Féin and towards towards their cause. Now they don't have that same um, po- those same political uh, goals as as you had mentioned uh, previously. But we do see um, from a recruitment point of view, recruitment of support and membership and maintenance of support and membership. They're constantly uh, seeing what they can uh, how they compete with Sinn Féin and other Republican groups as well. I think you've 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 previously used the term copying to be different, and it, it is really applicable in, in this context. Mm. Tony, what did Oma herald the end of the car bomb in your view? Um, well, like what John said there, I, I I cannot say for sure it's the end of it, but I think the likelihood of it happening at any time in the far future is very very remote. But if you look at the overall context of militant republicanism and the violence they use, I tend to look at these things over a much longer span of time. And of course, militant republicanism has its roots in 1798. And one of the things I always noted was I attended many of their uh, rallies in Bodenstown. And it was, uh, even though these were generally non-confrontational, it was remarkable the way they always seemed to be energised by the same repetitive speeches every year, the blood sacrifice, the Ireland unfree. So I think what's happening in relation to militant republicanism, it's in a hiatus period now. They're sitting back. Logistically, they're probably weak. They're not as unified as they as they would like to be and, and would need to be. And I think one of the leading uh, dissidents in the north there, in the, in the north of Ireland in the recent past, he, he put it very succinctly where he said that their issue is not to, uh, right now, the, the freedom of Ireland. They know that they're logistically hampered, but it's keeping enough of it in the public awareness so that when the right moment comes, they will be ready to strike. So th- all that's going to happen for the moment will be the odd random attack, something that we grab headlines the, the possibility, as I said earlier, of a, of a grievance attack or a, or a vengeful attack on, you know, a public servant, um, a a um, policeman, a prison officer. Uh, that's that you can you can never rule that out. And I think where Sinn Féin and the uh, the provisionals are concerned, they have long been viewed by the older Republicans as they were a reaction. They were a reaction to circumstance in the north of Ireland, because it, when, when 1969 happened, the IRA were in a hiatus, and the, the, the IRA, as the official IRA as they came to be known, were heading in another direction. They were heading in a Marxist direction, but they were still the ones that kept the flame alive. But generally, from what I read and see now, and from what I listen to, there is a, a lot of opprobrium towards Sinn Féin and the IRA, in that they basically sold out, and that something new has to happen. I would like to thank you both for joining me today on The Dark State. You were li- you've been listening to Tony Harty and Dr. John Morrison. Thank you both for joining me today.
And that concludes today's edition of The Dark State. If you enjoyed this episode, we would appreciate it if you could tell a friend or post a review. I hope you will join us again next week.